Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're following the first few launches of the brand new 2022 F1 cars and looking at the various different approaches to that that F1 teams took. What can we learn? Which elements could help us to project ourselves into the wider world or take on new challenges? Welcome to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. I really appreciate you joining me once again, and I really appreciate all the feedback and comments that I had after last week's episode, the first one of season two, where we talked about goals and goal setting. So many of you got in touch and reached out to say that you were really pleased that the podcast was back, uh, that you've shared it amongst friends, that you've played it even in your groups. Uh, a teacher even reached out to me to say that they played elements of it in their classroom, which is quite incredible. And honestly, I can't tell you how much that means to me. It's the very reason that I'm doing this. So if it is helping you, if you are enjoying it, if you're finding value in it somehow, please do let me let me know. Because look, I'm like anybody else. I need those little boosts. I need those little bits of positive feedback to give me the motivation to keep going, keep doing in this. Uh, I really enjoy doing it. It is kind of like therapy for me, uh, but I'd love to know if it's affecting you guys positively. So thank you so much for that. Um, today, as we did last week, uh, and we will do continuing moving forward, uh, I'm going to pick out some of the notes that I've written in my diary over the course of the last week. Now, of course, in the last week, in the F1 world, what we've seen is the unveiling of the new or some of the new 2022 F1 cars. Normally a big week, certainly a big week in my life. It's something that I look forward to for a long period of time. I know that many Formula One fans do because it comes off the back of a, of a Formula One drought, doesn't it? We have big Formula One season, intense as it was last year, and then all of a sudden, nothing. Nothing for months until it gets to this week and we finally get the covers coming off some of the new cars. And um, look, I want to talk today about some of the different ways that teams did that, went through that process, unveiled their cars, what they released to the world, what they showed to the world and perhaps what they held back. Some of the different methods they employed in that and how we might take stuff from that. I've written some notes as we went through the week um, and I'm going to refer to those and use them as talking points to delve a little bit deeper into this subject. So the first one, of course, the first car that we got to see, the first 2022 car was the Haas wasn't it? And look, that car was a backmarker in previous seasons. So in terms of expectation, I guess we're certainly not talking on the same levels as we would be when we get to see a Mercedes or when we saw the Red Bull, those kind of things. But because it was the first car that anyone saw from this new world of Formula One, these new regulations, perhaps the biggest regulation changes both technically, but also in terms of sporting, financial, governance, huge changing. We're going into a, a new world of Formula One. And so the anticipation is huge to see the first car. How are the engineers going to interpret these regulations? And look, I'm a, a technical guy. I've spent my much of my life inside a Formula One team going through exactly this kind of process. 
And I can tell you that this is one of the most hotly anticipated weeks in my life because I'm not inside those circles anymore. So I don't get a preview of the cars. I see them on the same day as everybody else. And so the anticipation is high. I'm desperate to know if there are some loopholes that might be exploited. I want to know what these new regulations are going to look like in the physical form. Yes, we had the models, didn't we, from F1 months ago. But that was a very generic, very sort of mundane and average and stylized model because Formula One are trying to promote a car that they want people to think is going to look great. The F1 teams, of course, on the flip side of that, don't really care if it looks great or not. They only care if it's fast. So that juxtaposition between the technical regulations, what you're allowed, what you're not allowed, what the visual interpretation of that's going to be, what the aesthetics are going to be like. Do fans like the look of these cars? Because to fans, it is more important. Anyway, what happened, of course, with this huge build-up to the first few cars being unveiled was that the Haas Formula One team, this backmarker that snuck in from the sort of shadows, if you like, no one's talking about Haas, no one's really desperate to see the Haas, but everybody is desperate to see the first Formula One car. And so there's a huge opportunity, which the Haas Formula One team exploited massively to their advantage. And, you know, I thought it was a masterstroke. And that's what I wrote in my diary. Masterstroke taking opportunities. And the point that I want to delve into here is that the opportunity came because when all the other teams announced when they'd be unveiling their cars, it was over the course of this week just gone and this week just coming. So... It's the first two weeks, essentially, of February. And that's when everybody had penciled in their dates. Now, they don't do that just, they don't get together and agree on a week. That happens because at the end of that two-week period is the first test. That's when you literally have to have cars in their physical form to take them onto the racetrack. So most teams would take the viewpoint that they would hold on to their cars until the very last minute because they're always working on them, they're developing them, they are taking their time to maximize the available opportunities, the available time they have before they have to actually construct the car, put it together and then ship it out to Barcelona for the first test. Now, that's typical. That's normal. That's what Formula One teams have done historically for many, many years. But don't forget the Formula One world in terms of fans, media, everybody around this sport hasn't been this hyped to see a new set of cars for perhaps forever. And so there's an opportunity when you're a backmarker like the Haas Formula One team, who, let's face it, if they drop their car in the middle of the rest of the group, are probably not going to get too much attention. People will have a quick glance at it, but they're not really going to be spending too much time focusing on it. And so what they decided to do was go not just a day early, but almost a week early. I think it was about five days earlier than the, the next earliest car to drop. Now, I think this is a bit of a masterstroke. Obviously, what happens there is the whole world has to tune in to their launch. The whole world is desperate to see any Formula One car that's being produced under these new regulations. And so the amount of attention, the column inches, the amount of YouTube coverage, television coverage, news coverage, the amount of people talking about that Haas car was way greater by an order to order of magnitude than it would have been had they launched at almost any other time. Now, you might think, well, you know, that's great. Of course, they've done that. That's wonderful for them. They maybe have, have got a little bit more exposure for their partners, for their sponsors, uh, for the team itself. Of course, that's all great. 
But what you have to appreciate is that that is not something that's particularly easy to just pull off at the last moment. Yes, it was a digital render of the car. It wasn't the real car. It wasn't a physical car that we got to see. It was a digital render, unveiled digitally. But it was the car. It wasn't just a copy of the F1 model. It was a variation of the actual Haas Formula One car. Perhaps an early version. And of course, it'll change. It will develop before we see it at the first test. But that'll be the case with every car that we see unveiled. What they did do was release a genuine Haas interpretation of the 2022 F1 regulations. And that is something that I know everybody around the fans and the media were desperate to see. Now, the point, the reason I'm writing, I'm, I'm telling you about this, the reason I wrote in my diary was a little point about taking and seizing opportunities is because that's exactly what the Haas team did here. They didn't have the same opportunity that a Red Bull has or a Mercedes has with huge fan bases and huge attention around it. People assuming it's going to be a title contender and therefore they're desperate to see it. And so they had to seize an opportunity almost out of nowhere to steal some of those column inches, to steal some of that media spotlight. And they did it so early that they got that media spotlight for a full five or six days, whatever it was, until the next car was unveiled. The only Formula One machinery that anybody had to look at, to talk about, to analyse, to speculate on was the Haas Formula One car. The reason it's so brilliant that they took this opportunity is that that's not as easy as it might seem to pull off. There are a huge number of things that go on behind the scenes to enable these launches to happen, even a digital one like that. You have to get all of your sponsors signed up and, and all in order to be able to launch the car. You can't be launching a car when you might still have a sponsor to sign a contract with or that a sponsor hasn't signed a contract for the following year so you're not 100% sure if it's going to be on the car for the season. You have to launch that car because of the media attention it's going to get with the right livery, the right partnerships, the right sponsors in the right places around that thing. Now again, not huge, not rocket science, but these are things that have to be in place before you're able to take that opportunity. There have to be conversations and agreements with the engineering department of that team as to which version of the car they're going to release. Because had they just released a digital render of the standard F1 model that was released earlier last year, I don't think it got much attention at all. It would have literally been a livery launch and people would have said, yeah, it looks kind of the same as last year. But actually there are details in this. There are interesting technical details for people to start poring over and analysing. Those things have to be agreed, they have to be signed off, they have to be agreed with the engineering team as to how far down the development path we're going to release the model. They have to build that model, they have to incorporate with that model the current livery and sponsors and partners and everything else. They have to decide which elements of that car they want to show and which ones they perhaps want to hold back. Are there sensitive areas that they might want to darken up on the images and, and and uh, not necessarily show the world? Do they want to literally delete areas of that car, which you can do on a digital render? They, of course, have to have discussions with management and all the various stakeholders involved that this is going to be a good idea. With huge attention comes the responsibility of getting all of those details right because you can't hide behind the fact there are other cars being launched at the same time. And if you get something horribly wrong, people are still staring at your car. And then, of course, there's the logistical side of this. You've got to 
gather the world's media. You have to find a way, literally find a way of launching this online. You have to build a site. You have to get everything in place from a digital perspective to be able to broadcast your launch or unveil these renders and images to the world. You have to send out the appropriate press pack that goes with it to all the various world's media. There's actually a huge amount that goes on behind the scenes to make this happen. And what I'm telling you here is because that's so impressive because the Haas Formula One team were ready to seize that opportunity. And that really is the biggest lesson that I guess we take from this. Seizing opportunities is something that is so important. You don't know when the next opportunity is going to come around of that magnitude. When's the next chance that the Haas Formula One team will get to steal that many moments of the media's attention? Whether it's written, visual, video, audio, podcast, whatever. People talked about that car for nearly a week exclusively without talking about any other Formula One team. Now, the value in that for the team, but even more so for the partners and sponsors, is enormous. I mean, very difficult to actually put a number on, but massive. For a team like that to garner that much exposure, they probably won't get that for the rest of the season. And so, because they were ready, because they had things in place, they were able to move quickly, to act quickly when the opportunity came up, to steal a march on everybody else and not only launch early, but launch so far early, they were even in the week prior to any other team launching their car. Being ready for those opportunities is important. And when I started sort of thinking about the idea of being ready to take opportunities, of course, there are many examples of why that's great. Sometimes it's quite obvious why that can be a really great thing. But I started to think about what, well, I started to think about a moment where I kind of got it horribly wrong. And I said to you last week, I want this podcast to be open and honest. I'm not going to shy away from telling you the bad bits uh, about my life. I'm happy to say when I've made mistakes. And this was kind of one of those. This is one of those moments where I look back and an opportunity presented itself to me and I wasn't ready for it. I didn't take it. In fact, I screwed it up. What I'm talking about is back at McLaren, back in my sort of early days at McLaren, really, where I was a number two mechanic back in the day. And a number two mechanic is, well, it's pretty far down the food chain, if you like. If you think about the organisational hierarchy of the of the team, of the organisation, you know, it's pretty far, pretty far down. It's um, if you think about a pyramid of how a Formula One team structure might look with the team principal at the top, a number two mechanic is some way down, right down towards the bottom. Um, so that was me at the time. That's how I started off life in Formula One. And I was very happy. I enjoyed it. I loved it. That was my dream job come true. And after having been there for a couple of years and having got over the initial kind of hype and rabbit in the headlights type moments and settled into the role, I started to think about the bigger picture of how our team operated. We'd had a few moments at the racetrack where things had gone wrong. So parts had failed, for example. Uh, there was one particular one where a wishbone on the back of Kimmy's car failed in qualifying after we just put it on. Brand new component. And it turned out that the joint that sits in the end of the carbon fibre wishbone hadn't been bonded. The two parts hadn't been bonded together properly. So the joint hadn't been bonded correctly to the wishbone. And we went out on track and it failed. Now, I started to think about this once I got over the disappointment of failing in qualifying and starting the race from the back of the grid. 
I got back after that weekend and it was always on my mind about how on earth that had happened. We had busted a gut to get that car together after an accident, putting all these new parts that had been produced in our factory, bolted it to the car and that particular component was massively substandard and failed and it cost us quite dearly. And I began to think more and more about this, about how on earth this huge structure that we had, this huge organisation could have such seemingly simple yet serious failures. And bearing in mind I was a number two mechanic and probably had absolutely no place to start getting above my station and start questioning how we do things as an organisation, or at least that's how a part of me felt back then. I went back into our factory and I started to go around talking to people, trying to get an understanding of of kind of what life was like back in our factory. It's not a place that I spent a huge amount of time. I was on the race team, often traveling the world, didn't spend a lot of time in the factory, but I was starting to pick up that it wasn't the happiest place to be. Even on the race team, there were lots of people that were unhappy. There were lots of reasons that people didn't like to work at McLaren at the time. Now, we were hugely successful. We were often challenging for race wins, even for world championships on a regular basis. So why weren't people happy? And a big part of it, I kind of gathered, was it was down to the environment we were asked to operate under. High pressure environment, but if you believed the hierarchy of the organisation, there was very little room for fun. It was very restrictive, in my opinion. People didn't have avenue to go and put their ideas forward and to express their opinions. It was very much a, the leader says, this is what we're going to do. And the people believe the leader carried out those tasks, those operations. Now, when I got back to the factory and started to walk around in my spare time, just asking people in departments that I'd never been into about how, what life was like, why did they do certain things a certain way? Why are we using this piece of equipment for this particular job? You can imagine the response when this jumped up little idiot comes into the uh, the workshop or into the factory and starts asking people who've been there for 10, 20 years, why on earth they're doing their job the way they're doing it. You can imagine people were like, well, what are you doing? Why are you asking questions like this? Who on earth, who on earth do you think you are? And I said to people, well, look, it feels like a lot of people are not happy. It feels like we are perhaps not you know, operating at our best capability here. We've got parts that are reaching the racetrack, you know, that are substandard. And perhaps a part of that is because we've just got people that are just monotonously producing components without really appreciating where those components are going to end up. Anyway, the upshot of all of this was that after circling the factory, doing a bit of sort of covert research in my spare time about what things were like in this factory and perhaps could there be a link between people's unhappiness if you like and these substandard components that kept reaching the racetrack I decided that I was going to go and see Ron Dennis now that might sound like a flippant sentence to say but believe me when you're a number two mechanic at the bottom of this huge hierarchy Ron Dennis is at the very top he's the pinnacle the top of that pyramid Now, this was perhaps a big part of the problem, but most people didn't feel like they had any right to go from the bottom of that pyramid to talk to somebody at the top. And that is exactly the response that I got when I told people that's what I was thinking of doing. People said to me, you're kidding. What what on earth are you thinking? I said, how on earth do you think you're going to walk into Ron Dennis's office 
the guy who's presided over one of the sport's most successful Formula One teams for years and tell him that he's not doing it right. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I did. <laughs> so I went and I made an appointment to see Ron Dennis. And uh, look, that took a couple of weeks. And that in itself, I thought, was a problem. A, that people didn't feel like they could approach Ron Dennis, but B, when they finally plucked up the courage, and believe me, it took a huge amount of courage for me to do this, it took a couple of weeks to be able to get an appointment to see him. Anyway, eventually I went in and I saw Ron Dennis and I told him everything. I was shaking like a leaf while I sat in his office, sat in that meeting. I was shaking and I told him everything that I'd found, not knowing how on earth he was going to react. And you know what? He reacted brilliantly. He was very positive. He was very grateful that I'd been and brought these things to his attention. I'm not sure he 100% believed everything I was saying, but he was certainly grateful that someone had plucked up the courage to let him know that things weren't perfect. Because if Ron Dennis is nothing else, he is a perfectionist. So if someone says there's something that's not perfect, well, look, he's the guy that's going to happily address it. What he did was put me on to Marty Whitmarsh. He's next in command. He said, right, I'm going to set you up with an appointment. I want you to go and tell everything to Martin and we will follow this through. and We'll get it sorted. And that to me was music to my ears because I had broken down the barriers of what everybody else feared about going to see Ron. And I had told him that things weren't right, weren't perfect, but I'd done it with a viewpoint of trying to make things better. And so when I went to see Martin Whitmarsh, and I am dragging this story out, but when I went to see Martin Whitmarsh, again, very positive response. We went through a series of meetings and set up a program to address the whole idea of human performance, of well-being, of, uh, you know, using the people in the factory and the organisation as a resource, tapping into that resource that we hadn't done before opening up channels where people could put forward ideas that previously had never felt comfortable doing so. We literally transformed the company and I take a huge amount of pride that I was a big part of that process. I instigated it to some extent, but I also was a central part of how the process ran and operated. It was a huge moment of pride for me and something that I still today take great comfort in knowing that I was brave enough to do it and, you know, I think we changed the company's fortunes together as a result. To bring this back to where I started this whole conversation talking about opportunity, one of my biggest potential opportunities at McLaren came in one of those meetings with Martin Whitmarsh and I fluffed it because after this process was underway, Martin Whitmarsh was hugely appreciative there had been a number of conversations recognising the contribution that I'd made to this process. And I was already being, you know, had a, had a feeling of pride around that. People were starting to know that I'd started this process and, and why things were beginning to change for the better as a result of that. And I sat in Martin's office one day and Martin said something to the effect of, you know, we need people like you in this organisation. We haven't got enough people like you in this organisation. And, you know, I sat there brimming from ear to ear, feeling, you know, an enormous sense of, of well-being and pride. And then Martin Whitmarsh said, what can this company do for you? He said, where do you see yourself in the McLaren organisation five years from now? And I absolutely froze and I had no answer for him. And I came up and in fact, I'll tell you what my answer was. I'm slightly embarrassed 
about what my answer was. I'm a little bit ashamed of what my answer was because my answer to that question was simply, oh, Martin, I, I mean, I, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I've always dreamed that I would have a job with a laptop. That was my answer. I mean, how ridiculous is that? What a pathetic answer to a huge question and a huge opportunity that was. I was a number two mechanic at the time. Everybody up the hierarchy for me seemed to sit in front of a computer. And at that time, that was the very best that I could come up with. And I must have looked and sounded like a complete imbecile, a person with no ambition, a person who had just had pretty much the head of the company that you work for ask you where you'd like to be in five years time and how the, how the company could, could help you get there. And the best I could do was say, I'd love to have a job with a laptop. Now, my my point on all of this, after going home feeling ashamed and embarrassed of, of what I'd just done, my ref, on reflection of that, what I decided to do was to never make that mistake again. That opportunity was potentially huge. Who knows where that could have led me within the organisation? I mean, at that time, I only had real ambition to be in Formula One, to move up that Formula One hierarchy, to get to somewhere near the top of McLaren. I didn't, hadn't thought about where. But just look at what I'd done over the past few weeks. I was starting to look at the big picture already as a number two mechanic. The potential for me in that company was huge, particularly given the springboard that I'd just been given, and yet I messed it up. And my point is, I wasn't ready to take the opportunity. And this is what I hope the lesson can be for all of us. We go through life not knowing when an opportunity is going to leap out in front of us. We don't know how big that opportunity is going to be, how significant it's going to be. We don't know when it's going to come along. And so it's impossible to be utterly prepared for anything for all of those occasions. Of course you can't be. But you certainly can do some work to prepare yourself to be in the best position should an opportunity that you can predict come up. And what I mean by that is every now and again, and this is something we can all do, and I, I do it today. Ask yourselves the sort of questions that somebody in a position of power or authority or influence might ask you. Ask yourself the question, where do you want to be in five years time? You know, if you are in an organisation and you have desire to move up within that company, well then just have an imaginary conversation with yourself. Pretend your boss walks into your office one day and asks you the exact question that Martin Whitmarsh asked me. What are you going to say? You don't have to have the specifics necessarily, but at least have a vision of where you would love to get to. Because not only does that help you in a moment like that, if an opportunity leaps out of nowhere, you know, you are ready. You have something ready to say. You have something to build from in terms of your answer. But also, if you've considered that question, if you've considered the question of where you want to be in five years time, it starts a mindset change where you start to think like the person you want to be in five years time. If that's in your mind, it gives you a goal, a target. It gives you a path to walk, walk down towards it gives you something to aim for. It means you're not meandering through life without any direction because you have considered and perhaps decided on, and even if you haven't decided on, you've at least considered 
the kinds of areas that you'd love to be in in a few years time the kind of opportunities you'd love to exploit should they come along and quite frankly it will probably also help you to create some of those opportunities because they're in your mindset so just asking yourself questions thinking about self-awareness who you are what your purpose is in life where you want to get to is a massively valuable process to go through because going through a process of self-assessment like that on a semi-regular basis because things do change you have to do this on a semi-regular basis because something that you decided as a goal 10 years ago may not be the same goal you have today you may have gone down a very different path life could have got in the way of that your goals and dreams and desires may well have changed you might have built different skill sets now you might have realized a skill set you didn't even know you had prior to that so asking yourself some of those big questions what's my purpose in life what are my values in life that's a really good one what are my values in life because that can help shape the way you do everything and off the back of that if you're true to your values if you decide on good values that are true to you and don't do this in a hurry take your time finding the values that are right for you and how you want to live your life is a huge task not something you might have the answer to straight away but by coming up with those answers it's a process a framework that can guide you through the rest of your life and when an opportunity leaps out in front of you like the one that leapt out in front of me all those years ago you'll be far better placed to know where you want to go with it having some self-confidence in what your pathway in life might be or at least which kind of skills or which kind of talents that you know you have because you are now self-aware having analyzed yourself over a period of time which of those skill sets and talents are you most likely to be able to employ in this situation when this opportunity comes up what are the things you love doing what are the things that make you happy all really valuable questions to know the answers to every now and again so that was my first point was that taking opportunity is something that you know obviously has value it has merit to be able to take an opportunity being ready to take that opportunity is a thing that you have some control over i always think we can prepare for many more moments in life than we think we can of course life takes massive twists and turns that it's impossible for anybody to predict but one of the things that in fact formula 1 like many things formula 1 has taught me this if you prepare for the moments that you have no idea if are going to happen but prepare for the moments that could go off totally left field from the plan of course make a plan go through a day with a plan go through your life with a plan if you want but also make some preparations for when that plan doesn't work in f1 we prepare for when pit stops go horribly wrong we prepare for if a driver comes in too long and overshoots the marks we prepare if the car comes in with a puncture or if a jack fails or if a wheel gun fails we prepare for those things the reason we prepare for them is so that when that comes along when that moment happens out the blue out of nowhere with no warning sometimes we don't have to stop and think under pressure and make a decision about what to do next and ultimately that's what happened to me when martin whitmarsh sprung that question on me i wasn't ready i had to stop and think 
I'm feeling under huge pressure, already shaking like a leaf because of who I was sat in front of and my relative position within the organisation to his. And I buckled under pressure. I didn't make a good decision. I fluffed my lines and I just said the first thing that came out. Now, if we do that in a pit stop when the front jack fails, for example, it's going to be the most horrific pit stop you've ever seen because we make terrible decisions under pressure. And my example is a perfect one. Under pressure, we can't think straight. We make poor decisions and that leads to poor performance. So by preparing for some of the things that could go wrong or preparing for a plan B and a plan C, just like we do with race strategy, we have a plan A, but if the start goes horribly wrong, what are you going to do? Are you going to desperately try and get back to plan A? Or are you going to have a plan B already in, pre- already in place, prepared for? So it's seamless, so we don't have to make tough decisions under pressure. We know what we're going to do in that eventuality, and we revert to plan B. Now, it's not always the easiest thing to do. I'm perfectly aware of that, and we can't plan for every eventuality. But this is about minimising risk of losing out on opportunity. And that really was my point here. Be as ready as you can be for whatever opportunity might come your way because you don't know when it's going to come. It may never come again. And it could just be the opportunity that completely changes your life. Now, the next point in my diary, because that one went on a long, long time, didn't it? Sorry about that. The next point was about the next car launches. So after the Haas car, which was this seized opportunity to grab the attention all that uh, time earlier than everyone else with a digital render, then we got the next couple of cars, didn't we? We got the uh, Red Bull and we got the Aston Martin. Now, those were two that I was particularly interested in. Red Bull, of course, because people might imagine they're title contenders. And then Aston Martin, because... You'd say they had a really disappointing year last year that they underperformed due to, you know, compared to expectation. And yet 2022 could be a real opportunity for them to bounce back. Now, if we take the Red Bull launch that came first, the note that I wrote in my diary on that particular day was, uh, hang on, let me find it. Okay, the note that I wrote that day was, how much do we reveal? And that note refers to the fact that the Red Bull's viewpoint on this 2022 car launch was that essentially they weren't going to reveal their car. They essentially revealed a Red Bull liveried version of the F1 model that had been released to the world the year before. And I think a lot of people were really disappointed in that because... Whilst we have no right as fans to see those cars any earlier than the fact that the moment they all hit the racetrack, the teams have no obligation to do that. There's nothing in the rules that say they have to release them at any given point. But I think, as I said about the Haas launch, there was huge expectation. And after five days of talking about what many people might consider a backmarker car in the Haas, we were finally going to get to see... Uh, perhaps opposing view from one of the front runners with huge resource, brilliant people with Adrian Newey leading the design team. What on earth could he take from this brand new set of regulations? And yet we saw almost nothing. Now, the reason that I thought that was interesting and the reason I'm linking it to the launch that we got the following day, the Aston Martin launch, was because this was a 
team that had taken the decision to essentially not reveal anything to the world and to keep their their cards close to their chest. To essentially hide everything away and keep it to themselves until the last minute. Now, of course, we can completely understand the viewpoint behind that. You can completely see why a team like Red Bull would want to do it, particularly in a year where everything's new and so everybody else is looking with a fine-tooth comb, with a magnifying glass at what you're doing in case you've come up with an idea that they haven't. It's perfectly natural to think this is what teams might have all done this year. And so it got me thinking about how much we reveal of the teams and the cars and whether it's better to keep stuff internal. Of course, inside, they're still working away flat out on that car, still developing, still building, probably putting things together. And of course, we'll see it for the first time when the car hits the track uh, in a week and a half or so at the Barcelona test. Now, the very next day, we got a completely different approach. And this was one that perhaps surprised me, but actually on reflection, I think is a really sensible way to do things. Aston Martin, a day after Red Bull, launched their actual car. No digital render, no mock-up from the F1 model, but their actual car to the world. And even more impressive than that, in my mind, was that one of the reasons they were able to do that, or one of the reasons they chose to do that, was because the very next day... They were running that car on the racetrack in their shakedown. That means they get to turn a wheel a full two weeks before the test happens. Just for a day, just for a limited mileage, limited opportunity, as the shakedowns have within the regulations. But at Silverstone, outside the doors of their own factory, where they'll get an amount of mileage on it, on the new engine, on the new components, on the tyres. They'll run the push uh, the push rods, the track rods, the suspension components, the drivetrain will get put through its paces. All of the systems on the car can be checked. The garage that the team will operate out of at the test, with all of its systems, probably many of them new as well, can be run through, can be tested. The intercoms, the communication systems, the ways of working any new people that might be involved. Everything gets a shakedown, not just the car. And the advantage, of course, of doing that two weeks before the test is that at the end of that day, on Friday, having done those miles around the racetrack, they'll roll it back into their factory. The car will get ripped apart, stripped down. The data will be poured over. And any opportunities they find from that shakedown test can many of them can be implemented or set into action and perhaps even put in place by the time the car goes testing for real out in Barcelona. Now the flip side of that, if you like, the the the, the cons, if you like, if you take those as the pros, the cons are of course that the world got to see their car before many other people's. But when you weigh those up in a year where this is such a huge change, we don't know how these tyres are going to work. We don't know how they will work with the new suspension systems, given that the dynamics, the chassis dynamics of these cars are going to be so different to what went before with the big squishy balloon tyres. We don't know how that's going to work. Some of these things may need a redesign. 
Now, of course, you're still limited with what you can redesign in two weeks. But if you think about the first race, well, then there's definitely opportunity to redesign, remanufacture components if there were a need for that. When you're running for the very first time in Barcelona, if you've taken the viewpoint that it's better for you to keep everything secretive and behind closed doors until the last moment, when you're then going to run it alongside everybody else, your time to react to whatever you find, and you will find things, is going to be very limited before the first race. Now, my biggest point that I took from this was that the way that Aston Martin had done it, I think is commendable, particularly in this year. I think that, of course, they will still have new components coming before they get to the test, and particularly for the first race, as everybody will, development continues. But what they've managed to gain is a huge amount of data much earlier than everybody else, a huge amount of learning. Even if they've made mistakes, they'll find those out much earlier. And if they've got things right, well, great, they can develop those, they can enhance those in the time they have now before the first race comes along, which is greater than the time that most people have. And to link this back to our lives and what we might learn from this, and my biggest takeaway from this is something that I see people writing to me all the time, talking to me at the end of my corporate talks, at the end of some of my after dinner talks at conferences and these kind of things. People come up to me and they say, look, I've got this idea. I'm I'm starting a business. Left a company last year with an idea to start a business. And I've been working on it now for six months. It's really starting to come together. But, you know, there's a few things I just can't find the haven't got enough money to make it happen. Haven't met the right people yet to partner with. I haven't yet found a premises to work from. I see and hear a lot of reasons why it's better to put things off and and wait, do it further down the line. And what I think we can relate the Aston Martin approach to their brand new Formula One car with this kind of stuff is sometimes it's better to just leap out there and go for it and get started. And the idea in life of a little bit like I touched on last week with the idea of New Year's resolutions, the idea of waiting for the perfect time, yes, it might actually work out for you. You may well wait and wait and wait, and then the perfect time will come along. It will slap you in your face and you'll go for it and things will all work out. But when you're waiting for the perfect time, first of all, will that ever come along? Will there always be some kind of excuse or reason why that's not the right time and the perfect time might be just around the corner? So let's wait a little bit longer. Well, what are you missing out on by waiting? If the perfect time doesn't ever come, will you never start that business? Will you never launch into that challenge that you're setting yourself, the new routine or regimes? Will you never go and see your boss to tell him that you've got an idea to make things better because you're waiting for the perfect time? Sometimes it's just better to throw yourself in and get started, even if it isn't the perfect time, because you know what? It's actually never the perfect time. There is no such thing as the perfect time to launch into something. Of course, a Formula One team eventually will run out of time and have no choice. They will have to unveil their car if they want to put it on a racetrack. But is that the perfect time? 
I mean, who knows? Because now what's happening is, and this is where I'm linking back to, if these people who come to me and say, I'm waiting to start a business, I'm going to start it next year. Once I've saved up some money, once I have found myself a place to work from, you know, once I've had a little bit of a break, those things may all be valid. But if you start it now, if you just do it, just throw yourself in and do it, even if it's not perfect, what you're doing, like Aston Martin did last week, is you're learning immediately. And it might go horribly wrong. But then look, you've learned a huge amount and you've learned it now, rather than waiting six months, waiting until next year, where it may well still go wrong. And yes, you may well still learn the same things, but you're six months or a year further down the line. So my point on all of this is sometimes it is just better to get started. If you're waiting for the perfect moment to do something, to try something, to launch into something, to change your routines, your way of living, your diet, your exercise regime. If you're telling yourself, I'm going to start going for runs next week, I'm going to start going for a run next month when the weather gets a bit better. Why not just go for it now? Because, like I said in last week's podcast, if the reason you're going for a run is to get healthy, to get fitter, to improve your life in some way, why wait till next week? Just do it now. If you are launching into something like a business, which is a huge unknown, and I know it can be hugely daunting, terrifying. If you're going to make a big decision, like quit your job because you feel like you want to do something different. Maybe it's because, maybe the decision is you want to break up with a partner because things haven't been good for ages, but you're just waiting for the right moment. Maybe you're waiting to tell someone you'd like to be their partner, but you're waiting for the right moment. The right moment is never going to come. Let me tell you, the perfect moment does not exist. So my advice, based on what Aston Martin did this week with their Formula One car, is just go and do it. You'll learn a huge amount. It might work, it might not, but you're learning and you're learning now. And that time you have off the back of it, where otherwise you may have been spending time procrastinating, that time you have is valuable time that you can act on the learnings. You can analyse the learnings. You can figure out what you could do differently next time when you go again. How could you have done it differently last time? Are there changes you could make to make it work? point is if you don't do it you will not you just never know you won't know you'll be sitting there for the next two weeks your next three weeks not knowing red bull are sitting in their factory right now of course they're frantically working away desperately trying to improve that car but they don't know how it's going to run they don't know if it's going to work or how it's going to work and they will only find that out in a couple of weeks time along with everybody else Aston Martin have an advantage in that in that front. And so, look, I just thought it was interesting that there are some hugely different approaches from Formula One teams about how to approach this launch season. A launch season unlike any other, of course, because of the scale of the changes involved this year. But something that I found fascinating and relatable to various elements of my life, the business life that I lead, the life that a lot of people come and ask me questions about. 
And so I hope there's some lessons in all of that that perhaps we can benefit from as a result. Some of the links might be slightly tenuous, but does that matter? The idea behind this podcast is to find lessons from the world of Formula One that either from my experiences in the past or from the things that are happening in the world of Formula One right now, from your experiences, if you're happy to share them with me, and then expand on them and try and learn things that we can all benefit from. And I personally think that this idea of taking opportunities and being ready to take opportunities is huge. That changed my life that day that I sat in Marty Whitmarsh's office. It didn't change my life in terms of accelerating my progress through the McLaren organisation because I mucked up that opportunity. I mean, look, my life has turned out okay. I'm very happy. I'm quite happy as things are right now. But I wonder what life would have been like had I been able to seize that opportunity, been ready to use that opportunity to catapult me up through the organisation. Would I still have been there now today? Who knows? So that was the first one. The other one is this idea of of just going for it. How much are we holding back and why are we holding back? What's the reason we're not just leaping into the action or the decision today? And is that reason valid? Is it justified? Or are we actually just deep down procrastinating, making excuses for ourselves because perhaps it's a difficult decision? Perhaps the potential outcomes could be scary. But look, if we're making a big decision like that, a life decision, whether it's a business decision in terms of starting one, whether it's trying to make a a bid for promotion in a company, whether it's a personal decision around relationships or family or anything else, presumably if we're making those big decisions, we're doing it because we think there's some benefit one way or the other, because we think it's the right thing to do either for us or the people around us. And if that value holds true, if that reasoning behind the decision is a valid one, if you can question that reasoning and still find the reasoning to be true, then my advice is let's not procrastinate anymore. Let's get on with it. Let's go for it. Let's take the leap, even if it's a leap into the unknown, because what you find when you leap into the unknown are answers. Some will be answers you're after. Some will definitely be answers you're not after. But as we've talked about on episodes in the past, from the biggest failures in life come your biggest learnings. And that moment I sat in Martin Whitmarsh's office and failed miserably, I learned one of the most valuable lessons of my life. And here I am today, perhaps sharing it with you. So listen, that's where I'm going to end it today. I hope it's another episode that's enjoyable. I hope it's an episode where there might be some value in it for you that you might have learned some things. I would love it if you could share this around. I'd love it if you share your thoughts with me. I'd love it if you could subscribe to the podcast. Drop me a a follow or a like or a review. A five-star review on Apple Podcasts particularly is huge. And leave a comment. Any of those interactions are hugely valuable to me. I massively appreciate them. I hope you'll have a wonderful week. More car launches next week and more pit lane life lessons as well. Have a good one, folks. I'll see you soon. Bye bye.